Alright, welcome to the Medicine Podcast. This is Dr. Christopher Hernandez, your host, and today we're going to be talking about hyperthyroidism. Thanks once again to Dr. Ross Murkison for looking over this episode, as well as the preceding episode on hypothyroidism. Okay, let's get going. In this episode, I'm going to proceed in much the same way I did in the hypothyroidism episode, starting off with some definitions, moving on to symptoms and signs, then going over etiologies, and finishing up with high-yield facts about treatment. Alright, so what is hyperthyroidism? How is it defined exactly? The first distinction worth making is that between thyrotoxicosis and hyperthyroidism. Thyrotoxicosis refers to the exposure of tissues to too much thyroid hormone from any cause, while hyperthyroidism refers to an excessive production of endogenous thyroid hormone. So all hyperthyroidism results in thyrotoxicosis, but hyperthyroidism isn't the only way thyrotoxicosis occurs. You could have exogenous thyrotoxicosis, of course, which would happen if a patient overindulged in levothyroxine, for example. So that's some terminology to be aware of. As in hypothyroidism, the diagnosis of hyperthyroidism is based not on symptoms but on lab values. Here we see the opposite results. TSH will be low, while free T4 will be high. Recall again your hypothalamus-pituitary-thyroid axis. In primary hyperthyroidism, which is what you usually see, the thyroid gland itself is the problem, and overproduction of thyroid hormone suppresses the hypothalamus and the pituitary, so TSH levels are low. Secondary, or central, hyperthyroidism does occur, though much less often. In those cases, TSH and thyroid hormone changes would be in the same direction. They would both be elevated. But usually, we're talking about an elevated free T4, or sometimes total T3, in the setting of a suppressed TSH. Okay, let's review the signs and symptoms. While thyroid hormone deficiency generally slowed things down, thyrotoxicosis generally speeds things up. But there are some counterintuitive exceptions to that as well. We all remember that weight loss and heat intolerance are major symptoms, but fatigue can be seen in hyperthyroidism too. Neuropsychiatrically, symptoms like hyperreflexia and tremor are seen and seem to make sense as well as decreased concentration, anxiety, irritability, and insomnia. That all seems to fit. Cardiovascularly, you can see tachycardia, palpitations, systolic hypertension. You can even see high output heart failure, which is one of the main reasons clinicians are careful not to put patients on too high a dose of levothyroxine when treating hypothyroidism. Gastroenterologically, you can see diarrhea, increased frequency of BMs, that is hyperdefecation, hyperphagia. You can again see menstrual disturbance, but this time we mean oligomenorrhea or amenorrhea, whereas in hypothyroidism you more often see menorrhagia. You can see muscle weakness. And lastly, you can once again see hair loss. You can see increased sweating, increased oil production on the face leading to worsening acne, and you can again see periorbital edema, which can also be present in hypothyroidism. 
So once again, a large constellation of symptoms, most of which fit the picture of the body's metabolism being too revved up, though some are slightly counterintuitive from that perspective, such as the fatigue and the muscle weakness and the amenorrhea. I should also mention that you can see lid lag or eyelid retraction, which is a result of increased adrenergic tone in all forms of hyperthyroidism. It's not a symptom unique to Graves' disease, which we'll be discussing presently. Alright, so let's move on to the causes of hyperthyroidism. In hypothyroidism, the most common cause in the US was an autoimmune disease, Hashimoto's. In hyperthyroidism, the most common cause is also an autoimmune disease, namely Graves' disease. So we'll spend some time talking about Graves' disease. The two other most common causes are toxic multinodular goiter and toxic adenoma. Then there are some familiar players like thyroiditis and medication-induced hyperthyroidism. Then there are a few other less common causes that I'll go over briefly. But let's start with the discussion of Graves. Graves' disease causes about 80% of hyperthyroidism in iodine-sufficient areas, so it's by far the major player here. It's interesting because it's a multi-system disease. In addition to affecting the thyroid gland directly, it also affects the ocular muscles and the skin. Like many autoimmune disorders, it predominantly affects relatively young women, generally in the 30 to 60 year age range, and is more likely to strike in patients with other autoimmune diseases or a family history of autoimmune disease. The pathology involves the immune system producing antibodies against the TSH receptor and inappropriately activating it. These antibodies are referred to either as thyroid-stimulating immunoglobulins, or TSIs, or as thyrotropin receptor antibodies, or TRABs. The result is a diffusely enlarged thyroid with a firm, smooth texture. You may also see cervical lymphadenopathy on exam, in addition to some of the signs we mentioned, such as hyperreflexia and warm, moist skin. The ocular muscle involvement is referred to as Graves' ophthalmopathy, and what's interesting about it is that it only occurs in about a quarter of patients with Graves, and it does not respond to the treatment of hyperthyroidism. So these patients may need steroids or even surgery to treat these manifestations, which include not only proptosis, but also diplopia, vision loss, and periorbital or conjunctival edema. The last manifestation of Graves to be aware of is pretibial myxedema, which is very rare, affecting only 2-3% of patients with Graves. It is a non-pitting edema over the shins with a peau d'orange appearance, the result of an infiltrative dermopathy. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about Graves' disease. Who was this Graves, you ask? Well, he was a very successful Irish surgeon who described the disease in the 1800s, and he apparently was also an uncredited inventor of the second hand on watches. His isn't the only name associated with the disease, however. In Europe, they more often refer to it as, I may say this incorrectly, Bastow's disease, after a German who described it around the same time, and many other names have been attached to the disease, and it looks like it was described as early as the 12th century, actually, by a Persian physician, So maybe it's better if we just keep things simple and we all just call it toxic diffuse goiter or exophthalmic goiter 
as some people want to. Anyway, let's keep moving. About toxic adenoma and toxic multinodular goiter, I'll just remind you that they involve thyroid nodules synthesizing hormone independent of TSH stimulation. They take on a mind of their own. This conversion to toxicity can be stimulated by iodinated contrast, as given for CT scans or cardiac catheterization. That iodine-stimulated conversion to hyperthyroidism is known as the jod Basedow phenomenon, J-O-D, Basedow, B-A-S-E-D-O-W. There's a lot of detail to know about the appropriate management of nodules, but I won't go into all that here. Let's move on to thyroiditis. I mentioned thyroiditis in the hypothyroidism episode because there's usually a hypothyroid phase. The typical arc is a hyperthyroid phase, then a hypothyroid phase, then a return to a euthyroid state. And each of those first two phases can last up to three months, though usually not quite that long. So it's worth appreciating that this can be a fairly long, slow process. To review, the hyperthyroid phase is the result of the release of preformed hormone from the thyroid follicles, which are damaged by inflammation. Then that supply is exhausted, and patients may become hypothyroid for so long that they need levothyroxine supplementation to help them get through. And then eventually, the levothyroxine can be tapered off or stopped as they return to the euthyroid state, though some unfortunate patients do remain hypothyroid and require lifelong levothyroxine supplementation. Thyroiditis can have a lot of causes, most classically post-infectious or postpartum, but Hashimoto's can cause it, certain medications can cause it, radiation treatment can cause it, etc. Let's leave it at that for thyroiditis. And to just quickly mention a few other causes of thyrotoxicosis, there's thyrotoxicosis factitia, which is the fancy term for thyrotoxicosis due to exogenous thyroid hormone administration. And there are some very rare causes, such as a pituitary adenoma secreting too much TSH, or autonomously functioning follicular thyroid cancer metastases, or even autonomously functioning thyroid tissue found in an ovary because there's an ovarian teratoma there. That's called struma ovarii. But those are definitely the quote-unquote zebras compared to graves, toxic adenoma or multinodular goiter, thyrotoxicosis factitia, and the various causes of thyroiditis. Alright, let's finish up this episode with a discussion of treatment. Treatments of hyperthyroidism is more complicated than hypothyroidism, where the treatment was pretty much just levothyroxine for everything. Here we have options. The three main treatment modalities for hyperthyroidism itself are the thioamides, radioactive iodine ablative therapy, and thyroidectomy. The thioamides, of course, being methimazole and propylthiouracil, or PTU, which work by blocking thyroid peroxidase and essentially interfering with the synthesis of thyroid hormone. But in addition to these three modalities, there's also symptomatic therapy, for example via beta blockers, which help to reduce adrenergic symptoms. So let's talk about all of these things and then we'll be done with the episode. The beta blockers used in symptomatic treatments are atenolol, metoprolol, and propranolol. Quick pearls to remember about the beta blockers. 
Propranolol actually decreases the peripheral conversion of T4 to T3, so helps manage symptoms that way as well, in addition to its own direct adrenergic effects. It's non-selective, however, so atenolol and metoprolol are actually preferred because they can be dosed more easily, once a day versus two or three times a day for propranolol, and their selectivity leads to decreased side effects relative to propranolol. As far as the actual treatment modalities go, the thioamides, ablative therapy with I-131 radioactive iodide or thyroidectomy, the algorithm here can get pretty complicated and it depends on the etiology and the patient and the situation. Generally, the thioamides are not curative, while the two other modalities are. However, do realize that all Graves' disease patients deserve a trial of one of the thioamides, because a good percentage of them, up to 50%, do go into remission, and some of these patients never recur and require no further treatment. Most, however, will eventually need definitive therapy with iodide ablation or thyroidectomy, and many Graves' disease patients never go into remission in the first place and also require definitive treatments. About the thioamides, you've got to remember that they can both cause agranulocytosis and liver dysfunction. So you've got to get a baseline CBC and liver profile before starting either of those two meds. If they get a fever or sore throat, immediately stop the med and get a CBC. Generally, methimazole is the better tolerated of the two and the drug of choice. The exception to this is the first trimester of pregnancy when the risk of teratogenicity from the methimazole outweighs the risk of hepatotoxicity from PTU. Of note, PTU also decreases conversion from T4 to T3, just like propranolol did, and the birth defect methimazole is most associated with is aplasia cutis, which is an absence of skin at birth, usually on the scalp and fairly minor, but sometimes in other locations and very severe. In cases of hyperthyroidism due to toxic adenoma or toxic multinodular goiter, you can skip all that methimazole PTU nonsense. Radiation therapy or thyroidectomy are the first-line treatments. About treatment with I-131 radioactive iodide, do realize that the goal of treatment is basically to obliterate the thyroid gland. So the patient will be totally hypothyroid and will require lifelong levothyroxine supplementation afterwards. It's interesting to think about what this treatment modality actually consists of. The patient is just taking pills, basically, but highly dangerous radioactive pills. These patients are actively radioactive human beings and should not share drinks, should not sleep in the same bed, basically should not get close to other people, especially children and pregnant women. How long this period of social quarantine lasts depends on the dose needed, but it's basically just a few days or sometimes up to a week or two. But I'm sure it makes for a very strange week. Up to 20% of patients fail their first round of treatments and may get another round of treatment a few months later. If the second round also fails, it's time to think about surgery. Regarding surgery, thyroidectomy is generally safe these days in the hands of an experienced practitioner, but risks, of course, remain, such as damage to the recurrent laryngeal nerve or damage to the parathyroids resulting in hypoparathyroidism and hypocalcemia, 
Sometimes it does make sense to skip the above described measures and proceed directly to surgery, such as in any patient with compressive symptoms. Needless to say, these patients will also require lifelong levothyroxine therapy after surgery. Okay, I think I've covered the basics about both hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism. I've been saying thyroid so much that it's hard for me to say now. There's much more to know about the thyroid, of course, and maybe I'll cover topics like thyroid cancer, myxedema coma, and thyroid storm in a future episode, but I'm going to leave this topic here for now. As always, please feel free to email me with questions, feedback, or comments at themedicinepodcast at gmail.com. The podcast should be available on many different podcasting platforms by now, so if you like the show, please do leave a rating or a review. It will help other listeners to find it. All right, see you next time.